0: Okay, welcome to the second episode of Loop Houston. I'm here with Leonard Koopman and Rakesh. Leonard is the founder of Greylog, a open source logging software.
1: Yeah, I'll explain that later. That he
0: will explain (laughs) shortly. Uh, Leonard is uh, from Germany. He recently moved to Houston uh, about a year ago. And so he's with us here today. Thanks for coming, Leonard. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So just to get started, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How would you get started, your early interest in computers, and how that brought you to where you are today, founding Graylog.
1: Right. Um, so, yeah, I was born in Germany. Um, I was living in Germany for 27 and a half years almost. Um, and um, I started working with computers really early, I think. So um, my brother is four years older than I am. And uh, he started playing around with computers when he was probably 11 or 12 or something. And um, so he showed me the first very, very literally basic things. Like I was programming basic. I wouldn't really call it programming Um now that I know what programming is, I wouldn't call it programming what I did back then but it was a DOS computer. Um, I think it has windows 90 Windows 3.11 um, on it too and um, I was just I was playing around the command line and I was lucky enough to still start with a computer that was running on a command line. So I grew up with a command line probably the last So I was born in 88 and I guess people born in 90, in, in 90 probably already missed the command line days and were used to only windows 95 or something um, so yeah i was just playing around with computers forever and um was of course playing games on it but i uh, was also programming small interfaces so i could select the game that i wanted to play more easy and didn't have to type in these dos commands to navigate to a to a floppy disk and stuff like that and um so um yeah i just kept on doing that um Then right out of school, um, I decided to basically start working right away. So I skipped college. I never went to college. Um, I left the, what is I guess, the German equivalent of high school um, and decided to um, go to the next bigger city because I grew up pretty much in the countryside on a small 10,000 people living in their town, maybe um, not much going on. One computer company that was building not very interesting websites for the local um, companies in that small town. So I thought I can either work for that company or I can start, uh, go to college or I can just go to the next bigger city, which was Hamburg, um, and go there and start working right away. And um, that's basically what I did. So I came out of school and started working professionally.
2: I was lucky enough to... Find a company um, that well, was... By the way, that, yeah. that town, uh, I, I kind of remember you're telling me about this once, but mm-hmm. you know, it was the goal of a lot of people who grew up there to to get out of that town. Yes. It, I mean, not necessarily that particular town, but just it was a small town.
1: Yeah, it was the classic European or German small town where if you wanted to do something, especially with computers or something with technology, then it was clear you wouldn't do it there. Um, if you... If you wanted to have a career, basically, it was clear you would leave that town sooner or later. Um, mm-hmm. Either just to go to college, and some people came back and um, started businesses there, or, or joined the local insurance branch of a bigger insurance company over there. But many people I know left and didn't come back. Only come back for Christmas or to see their parents over the year, basically.
2: Do, does your family still live there?
1: Yes, my parents still live there. Uh, mm-hmm. My brother is studying, um, so he's, he's in college right now. He, he left. I don't know if he's going to come back. Um, We'll see.
2: (laughs) So you moved to Hamburg, back to yes. Yes.
1: So I uh, I moved from there to Hamburg. I was I turned how old was I? I think I just turned sixteen actually when I decided to move to Hamburg. And I was now I would say I was lucky because um, my generation was also the last generation born in eighty eight. It was the last year that still had to do the um, civil service in Germany. So you could decide if you wanted to do civil service or go to the army for nine months. Um, and um, I think everyone born in 89 didn't have to do this anymore. So it was really just, 88 was the last year that still had to do it. There was no way around it. And most people I know decided um, to just write a letter to the army, basically, and then you could say, hey, I don't want to do this, but I can do nine months working in a hospital, for example, as basically a replacement of your military service. Hmm. Um, They got rid of it because there's no Cold War anymore, and they were like, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. The cool thing is, however, that they take care of you for nine months because the law says that someone who does civil service has to have exactly the same rights and the same or or, or get the same things as someone who does um, the military service and because military service you would be in barracks basically and, and you, you would have a place to stay mm-hmm. as a civil service uh, or when you're doing civil service you will be getting a place to live and they will pay all your bills and take care of you so you're basically living on the premises of the hospital and you don't have to care about anything which is great for your first nine months of moving out um, so you did this I did when that move to Hamburg I did that and um, I sent them my CV and usually they put you they you, you help somewhere in the hospital or you you clean up outside you do something social something to help others um, they saw my resume, however, and they saw that I was interested in computers. And just in the month when I wanted to start, they had another person doing civil service just end his civil service the month before hmm. in their IT department. So I was basically working in their IT department for nine months to help monitor the system, set up computers, do stuff like that, which is uh, they pay you pretty well, actually. They take care of everything, and you, just, you get your first professional experience,
2: um, and you're First months away from home, basically. Is it is it uncommon for uh, for a sixteen year old to leave home and uh, in Germany? And yes, it is. Oh, so it is? I, okay.
1: I I had to actually I had to do a lot of paperwork um, to be screened for military service before they call you. Usually you would get a letter when you turn 18 or 19 or 20, you get a letter Uh saying like on on this date you got to come here and we'll screen you to see if you are able to do military service and then they'll just put you into a unit if if you don't say you want to do the civil service. And I had to ask to get this done so I could start my civil service. Like this is not even the system doesn't really expect someone to do this. Um, under twenty years old, basically. So, did you finish high school early then? Um, so, I uh, I never skipped a class, and I never had to repeat a class. Um, so, I just skipped the, uh, or I just
2: finished a normal year. So, you just finished with sixteen at sixteen. And, yeah, at
1: sixteen or seventeen, you usually finish high school
2: in Germany. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the American context, I think that sixteen years old is is pretty young for. Yeah. Um, for, you know, a young adult to leave the, leave the nest and, right, right. you know, go it's, out and find their way. Yeah. And it's also unusual for Germany. Definitely.
1: It was a good okay. decision. Um, and, uh, I always had a good and still have a good relationship to my parents and, um, they supported that. And
2: so it was just getting out of the small town was really the reason. <laughs> That's great. And yep. so, uh, you did that for nine months. Yes. Um, and, and sorry, that yep. was the, a hospital.
1: That was at a hospital. At right. A hospital.
2: Exactly. So and. Um, then I did um,
1: what in I don't know if that's a word that people in the U.S. Would know, but in Germany it's called an apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, and Germany has this half school, half practical work apprenticeship system, which I think is great because you get you get the theoretical knowledge that you need to get started, and you also get the practical knowledge how to actually work, basically, right? Like you work with clients. You you spend um, five days, four days of the week, you spend at a company working with them and you have a trainer there and then one or two days a week you go to school basically and you it's a good combination i think Mm -hmm. um it's not really teaching you computer science so if you want to do more with this you better take care that you learn this stuff yourself Mm -hmm. um because i've seen people coming out of this and they were still not prepared to really work professionally they will do um they they wouldn't be able to start right away in a in a uh, as a developer for example they would have to do support for some time or something that's easier to get started with probably
0: What, what skill sets do you think they were missing
1: i think they were you what you learn in school is really only the surface it is you have to they will tell you how to write a basic php program but then how to how to really operate a database and how to write something that's scaling, this is something you're supposed to learn in the company that you're working with, but if that company is not really doing that, but only working on small client projects, then you will still not learn it. So, I spent then, I spent just all my free time learning stuff um, that I wouldn't have learned if I just did this
2: normal apprenticeship, I think. So, you did an apprenticeship? Yes. After, 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 the, the, civil civil serv- after exactly. the civil service. After the civil service. Uh, that that's assigned to you by the government. The the, the apprenticeship is assigned? no. You have to. It's basically like getting any other
1: job. You have to apply. You have to oh. find an open position, and then you just the government is assigning you a spot at school somewhere. That's like your 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 place in a class. That's what you get. Um, mm-hmm.
2: But the job itself, you have to find. Um, yeah, right. And and you choose a field mm-hmm. that uh, you know. There's a corresponding academic program. Mm-hmm that corresponds to that apprenticeship exactly so it's i think the i had to collect this information in english for my
1: for my uh visa over here in the u.s i think it's called a computer <laughs> science expert um huh. uh apprenticeship
2: that's i think the official name that's also recognized in the u.s yeah i've actually heard uh the german apprenticeship mm-hmm. apprenticeship system referenced as uh you know something that we could do with more of here in the united states um in the context of a conversation about our education system higher education system and how uh, there's a bit of a bubble in higher education there are mm-hmm. a lot of people that are getting four year degrees and getting into significant debt um, getting a four year degree that really should be doing something that's more vocational yeah um, and and this apprenticeship program that Germany has is is that yeah. right it prepares you to do work in the real world exactly right and it's so it's a mix of practice and theory exactly I didn't realize it was four days of practice and one day of theory was yeah that, that that's that the that's what it
1: usually is and then sometimes you have half a year where it's two days of, of uh, theory but it depends and um, the the tests that you have to do after so I did that for three years that's the normal it usually takes three years. Um, you could do it shorter if you had a higher education before, then it's two years, but I did it for three years. And the tests that you have to do at the end are all standardized so that the people are actually, or if, I, I remember, I had, I think, a 1.8 or something, and the 1.0 would be the best, and I had a 1.8, and then you can compare migrate to basically anyone else in Germany, no matter in which state of Germany that, that person did that test, basically. So you get your you get your certification at the end. I never showed it to anyone since then. Like, no one really cared. Um, I think, which is just if you work in IT, no one really cares about, like, what is your computer science expert degree? I, I had to find a copy for my visa documents here, and it was hard to find. <laughs> it. Um, and especially in IT, it's like, show me what you can do. And not so much of how what did you graduate in, or what was your what was your um, yeah what, what what grade did you get? Hmm. Yeah, interesting.
2: <clears throat> and how long did the apprenticeship last? That was three years. Three years. It's usually between two and three years. And what company did you did you end up at?
1: Um, it was a small company. It was probably we were always between six and ten people, probably working there with one more senior guy who was taking care of basically training me. Um, And um, yeah, it was basically web development, all kinds of web development. Mm. Um, One cool thing that I did there, actually, and I'm I'm glad that I did that, was that the Hamburg Harbor um, has is I think the second biggest in Europe, and um, they have a lot of ships going in and out, of course, and they need a coordination of um, for the uh, for the companies that operate the tugs, for example, and for the companies that are attaching the ships when they're coming. Like they still throw long ropes. Over the ship, and they just pull it on, right? Um, they um, they have to coordinate that somehow and know when a ship is coming in and get an automated alert that this is a ship of a client and we have to do some service on that ship when it comes in. And um, that is the information from these ships are broadcasted on a on a public frequency. And um, hmm. my graduation project actually was a was a software that was connected to an antenna or to multiple antennas along. The, uh, uh, the shoreline of Germany, basically, that was that was listening for those um, radio communications and was plotting onto a Google map the position of these ships and when they would be coming in and stuff like that. So that was where I learned a lot about low-level sea programming and mm. operating databases and stuff like that. Because my trainer basically said, you seem to know what you're doing. just This is the device. This is the cable where the signals are coming out. Write some program that can plot this on a map, basically. Um, and that was, a, that was a pretty cool project to, to end the uh, apprenticeship with. Because usually you would
2: like, build a WordPress site with a MySQL database behind it or something. So I was glad that I was able to do that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So that, that's the kind of project that this company did? Um, that was one of the biggest projects of this company. Ah. The others were content management systems okay. and just the, okay. the grunt work of, of uh, Internet programming, I guess. And so uh, I'm interested in this mm-hmm. software. So what would it do? It would send a. It would say, "Hey, this, you know, vessel has come mm-hmm. in, based exactly. on the radio signal that exactly. was received by these yeah. antennas that we had." And
1: we we translated the um, the analog signal that came in through the antenna, sent it over the network, and then my program would accept that data and would parse it back into the information because it's basically short packets that say, "I am a." vessel that is doing this or this operation, this is my heading, this is my GPS position, stuff like that. So you could just store that in a database and plot that on a map in the end. That was pretty interesting because it had a real life thing. Like I think we had a conversation once about if I was to start any company right now I would probably do something with drones because it's something that you can touch yeah like I don't know if it's like if it makes sense or not, but I would like to do
2: something with drones because you can touch it so, so did, was the uh, the receiver radio uh, and the computer mm-hmm. that uplinked this data to this database mm-hmm. was it um, was it battery powered or did you have some sort of like station mm-hmm. there, and what was the range of the the radio. Um, it was if there was. It was basically
1: if there was a ship somewhere on the German coastal line, then you could accept that signal almost all over northern Germany. So you just had to have like several antennas along the shoreline, and uh, we actually paid people who lived close to the sea, to the North Sea, for example, in I that see. case, and said, "Can you put this thing on your house, on your roof, and we'll give you fifty euros a month or something." And we hooked that up to your normal internet
2: connection, and that would send it to our office um, where we would receive the signal then that's what we did. Wow, that was pretty cool. Did you get involved in like selecting that hardware? No, was that was there already um oh, so i was okay. I was it, just got it, got sitting it, got it, got it, at the it. end of an internet connection that was receiving all of those signals coming in basically that's what i do yeah, <laughs> yeah I, one thing that's uh that's that's cool is uh and i I recognized this the first time that I met you, mm-hmm. but um you know, it's it comes out in the story as well. But you're, you know, we're motivated by harder technical problems. Yes. And and in that sense, you're, uh, I think, a classic engineer. I I guess I guess I mean this is yeah. you like to work on 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 more difficult problems and yes. always looking for that growth um, mm. in your in your skills. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly why I took on this project at the uh, apprenticeship
1: to to read this data from the vessels because there was no documentation for it. I just got a random set of, of bytes and bits, and I uh, I had to build my own lookup table to translate the weird um, code, the weird ASCII code to the actual um, the actual vessel names. For example, you had to get creative because you got like you you you. At some point, I figured out that this was a six bit ASCII. Um, uh, uh, encoding basically, and I knew that I could look up the ship names or the vessel names in another database. So I translated from there and just played around with two tables until I uh, until I decoded <laughs> that stuff myself. Basically, and that, that's what I always liked. Um, if I, that's why I left that company because I knew how to set up this content management system and how to connect to a database and how to write applications that communicate with databases. And I, I felt like I wouldn't learn. Too much new stuff anymore.
2: Would would you try to give us a, a sense of what Hamburg was like? Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it? What, what is the city of Hamburg like? Right. We're yeah. sitting here in Houston, overlooking Buffalo Bayou at my office. You know, what yeah. is what is what what was the world like when you were twenty in Hamburg?
1: Um, I think pretty much what the world is like there today, except that nowadays there's more startups. Um, oh yeah. I think. So Hamburg is is one of the richest cities in uh, in Germany. I think only Munich is richer when it comes to to bigger cities in Germany. And it has a strong um, I, I don't know if that's a familiar term in the U.S., but a strong Hanseatic background. So it's that was an old trade union basically in Europe. So that was always the richest cities. That went from I think from Spain up to Russia, and that was just connected cities that build that that build. A way to trade with each other, um, and so there were always there were always there was always business in town. It was always known to be there. There is a certain spirit to Hamburg, and has always been. And um, Hamburg has probably two and a half million um, citizens when you count the surrounding areas into it. Um, it's the second biggest city in in Germany and uh, it's very international. Um, so that's what I always liked about it because it has the harbor. It's the second biggest harbor in Europe. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of people. You, Hamburg has a strong history of sailors, for example. There's a there's a part of town called St. Pauli and this is where where the sailors, when they left their ship after being on sea for months, this is where they went to have a beer basically. And it's still a little bit like this today. And mm. um, Hamburg is known to be very, very open and very international. And, um, Back then, it was. I think that startup that I joined after my apprenticeship was one of the few startups in Hamburg. And this was also there weren't a lot of startups in Germany in general. Uh, And I didn't even know what I was joining back then. They are super successful today, but back then it was really a no. No one really knew where it was going. Not yet profitable. This was something unusual back then, which today seems very normal that you get stock options and you join a company that no one knows where it's really going and has investors. Um, that was back then was was unusual in, in Germany. I think that that changed in the last years.
2: What were you learning on your own and how are you learning on your
1: own? <clears throat> I was just playing around with projects that I knew I would never launch simply because I knew they wouldn't be good enough. So I was just I always needed a real world example to, to work on. Um,
2: I, uh, any, I any always examples
1: that you that you remember? Random website projects, I guess. Um, And um, I just wanted to get involved with different technologies to learn how they are different. And I never became really a master in any of those until I joined the first real company that I joined. um, That was after the apprenticeship. But I always knew what I needed to know to solve what I wanted to solve. Uh, And the moment I had that, I was just going on. So I think from basically being 13 to... 21 or 22. I was just learning everything to a basic level and then start learning the next thing simply because I wanted to get an overview of What is possible and what you can do and how you can do it? Um, And then I started to become really good at things because this was when I started working really professionally and I couldn't say hey I'm a trainee. I'm not supposed to know all of this Um, This is when I started to work professionally. So of course you have to get good at certain things. Um,
2: Okay, Leonard. So uh, You're the founder of Greylog. Yeah Um, I am We haven't covered this yet. Tell, tell us what Greylog is first. Mm-hmm. Um, Greylog is an open source project
1: that also has a company behind it now which is also called Greylog and um, what you do with it is if you imagine that you are a company and you have any kind of data center or you even run in the cloud, you run on AWS for example, um, then you will have devices in there that are generating Information that is called log messages, L O G. Um, And that information is basically a short text, like a short sentence, that is giving you information about what a device or software has just performed, or if there was an error, for example. So if you, for example, go to google.com, you will be generating tons of log messages in the Google data centers. That is, first of all, a firewall that is letting your network package in. Then there is going to be a load balancer that is routing your request to a specific server. And then that server is going to generate information that it handled your request, how long it took, from which IP address it came, all kinds of information. And now imagine that there was an error somewhere in the chain. There was a firewall that could not forward your network packet, for example, to where it should go. Or it blocked it, even, because it thought that you were malware that was trying to do something evil with the Google infrastructure. now, if I called someone at Google and said, hey, I can open your website, what's going on? If you imagine that you're Google and you have hundreds of thousands of servers, finding that one log message that's telling you what was going wrong is going to take a while. Um, and with a software like Graylog, you can centralize this information. You basically send it from the devices or the software that is generating those log messages. You send it into a central point, and this is Greylog, and this is where we accept the data. You run it in your own data center. We take the data, and we make it searchable. So... The person at Google can now go in and type in a search query, and will find your error message and tell you, "Yep, that was our fault." Or, for example, will tell you, "Hey, you did something wrong. Um, this is how you can fix it." Um, and this is something that you really need if you have basic, if you have more than two or three servers, then you can need this because you um, you don't want to open three log files. It's basically text files open them in three different windows and try to correlate information between there. Um, And if you have a few hundred servers, it's next to impossible to find the error message. Um, And this is what Greylock is doing. And Greylock is open source. Um, That means the source code is openly available. You can download it for free. And you can take the source code, improve it, and give it back to
2: us. We can merge this change that you did back into the main code line of Greylock. So how, how did you end up starting Greylock? What, uh, what, what was the path that led mm-hmm. you to, to starting this? So that was at this company that I mentioned, the company that I joined
1: after my apprenticeship. Um, actually, on my second day there, um, we were searching for something that I could start working on. Um, what, what did that company do? Um, so they're a startup. They, um, they are basically a website builder. But a pretty good one. There's a lot of website builders out there that produce websites that are not necessarily very good looking or easy to use. They have done a very very good job in allowing you to build very good looking and very functional websites. Um, that's what they're doing. And they were when I joined, they were they were adding tons of new users every day, and they were adding new servers to handle all of these users. And they were also starting to accept the first paying users, so the first real customers would call Customer Care and say, I tried to create this widget on my website and it failed. What went wrong? Then Customer Care would walk over to the developers and ask them, here's the user ID, and they got an error. Figure out what the error is so we can tell the user what happened and how, to, how we can fix it or when it's going to work again. Um, And if you add a lot of servers every day, it just took longer and longer and longer to find the error message. So, on my second day, we were searching for something that I could work on. And usually, you start, if you're not familiar with the infrastructure, with the team, with how everything works, then you try to find something easy to do or something that's completely isolated from what is there already. And um, we thought about maybe I can just start researching or figuring out what is there that we can use to centralize log files because we thought we can't be the first in 2009 to have this problem. There's other companies with more than two servers in the world. Mm. There must be something. Um, And we actually found something, but that was a commercial vendor that is still out there today and still doing pretty fine, actually. It's very strong. Um, That was doing exactly that, but it's not open source, not free. And that was so expensive that we immediately said, no, we're going to build this ourselves. Not feasible to use for the problem you were trying to solve. Yeah, we just didn't have the budget to pay this. It was so expensive. Hmm. Um, Splunk. Yes, exactly. And um, so... To be more specific, I said that we're going to build this ourselves, and that couldn't be so hard. Um, And I actually said the famous word that I would build this within two weeks. That was in 2009, and we're still not completely finished (laughs) in 2016. Now we're the real company and (laughs) 10 developers on it. But um, I had a prototype running within a few days. um, And that was just doing what we wanted to. It was accepting the logs over the network, was writing them into a MySQL database, and I wrote a little web interface on top of it that you could search through. And that was running there for a while, and then after I think half a year or a year, I decided to make this my learning project to learn something new. I had never done Java before, and um, I thought this would be a great project to learn something new, and I didn't plan to release any of that at any time. I just like all the other new learning projects that I did before, um, I just decided to, in my free time, so after work, on the weekends, to uh, work on what I called then Greylog 2. So I just appended a 2 to it because it was completely new, which turns out to be a complete versioning nightmare because we just released version 2 of what is now called log. So it's now Greylog 2.0, and the people from back then, it's it's a big confusion out <laughs> there. You should never include a number in your product name. Um And um, so, yeah, I started doing that. And I uh, showed that at a few user groups in Hamburg and at a conference in Berlin, actually. And I got so much people asking me on better documentation, better installation guides, because I just put that out there on on, on GitHub, make it open source. And um, I didn't plan for others to use it. Mm -hmm. And uh, people started to use it. And I was surprised by that. And suddenly we get 60,000 downloads a month. And um, people all over the world use it. And I I meet people who have seen me talking about it on the internet and thanked me for this product. So um, it, it started, there was definitely a need for this in the market. Um, me-
0: meanwhile, you were still working at that company.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I did all of this in my free time, basically.
0: Huh.
2: It's, uh, that's amazing. And how quickly did you get up to 60,000 downloads per month? I think that happened um,
1: within probably a year or something. Um, it just—that's the great thing about open source. People suddenly see this and start talking about it because it's free and open source. And you're not—if you start talking about this and show it to colleagues, you don't feel like you do. you're doing free marketing or sales for some company, but it's for a free and open source product out there. And this is what people like. And this is really the—the the, the beauty about open source. That I had zero marketing dollars. I didn't make a lot of money back then, and I just—I just spent some money to pay uh, for a train ticket to go to speak at some user group. That was probably a marketing budget of fifty euros, so I don't know, seventy dollars or something a month. That was my marketing budget, and um, people all all over the world were using it. So, why open source?
2: Uh, I mean, I, I guess you 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 know you just told me what one of the benefits, right? Yeah. Like Frictionless distribution of, exactly. of the product is that the main thing that you know made you release this as open source.
1: Yeah, and also because I was always only using open source software. So it was kind of natural for me to, well, of course it's open source. Like this, in the beginning, I didn't even think about what license to use. I just used the license that I always use, which is GPL3. Um, And yeah, it was completely natural, which is a great thing to see that this is the standard today for developers if they do something in their free time. They're just, it's always open source.
2: Yeah. How soon after you built this did the company you worked at start using it? Um,
1: they were because they were using my
2: uh, the prototype for ah. a pretty long while.
1: They were actually, the whole time I was working at that company for, I think, two years or something, um, they were using that prototype because it did like, exactly what we needed. Um, they are today using um, the greylog that we're developing. They switched over from the prototype to the real um, log, I think, a few months after I left that company.
2: And uh, so it's an open source project. Mm-hmm. It's get it, gotten a lot of traction mm-hmm. in the market. People from all over the world downloading it, sixty thousand per per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, but there's still not a company, right? It was it's just it was just me and just a bunch you. of other open
1: source developers. But I would say that ninety eight percent of the code was coming from me back then. Yes,
2: it was just me. Okay, so you had other people contributing to the code. Yeah, exactly. In, so we, in meaningful ways, but but you know, it's not maybe not. In small ways? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Not in... Yeah, they were spending a
2: lot of time on it. Um, when it. I mean, it's free
1: time, right? So if you spend two hours a week, that's already a lot of time that they were spending on it. But the, the
2: most stuff really came from me. It was like small patches, small changes that came in from the outside back So then. So wh- how did, at what point did you think, hey, maybe I should, should start a company? Mm-hmm. Um, around this. I actually didn't think about starting a company almost until I started a
1: company. It was... Back, so I after I left that startup that we talked about, I joined a company called Zing, um, which is basically the German version of LinkedIn. Mm. But LinkedIn is pretty much ruling the world, the whole market, everywhere, except the German-speaking countries, because that's where Zing is. And um, I think today they have 15 million members or something, publicly wow. traded company, great place to work at. And um, so I joined them because they were doing something. Again, I was bought with PHP, which was what we did at the other company. And I said... Mm. Well, maybe I'm just going to join another company that does something else that I was doing in my free time named Ruby, Ruby on Rails, which is a uh, web development um, framework and a programming language. And um, so I joined that company and um, they started using Greylock pretty soon, actually, after, after I joined them. And I had a, my team lead in my team there... Um, Heard me coming into lunch and coming in the morning, saying like, "Hey, now this big company is using Greylog. and now that big company is using Greylog. And because I was, I was an engineer. I didn't. It was cool that they were using it, but I was interested in building a great product. I, I wasn't that interested in who was using it. I was. I just if I knew someone was using it and it makes their day easier, then my job was done. That was that was what I wanted. Um, so that person then saw the more of the, um, the, the interesting business background of this, saying like, look, if they are all using it and they don't use your expensive competitor. And this is the first time someone called something a competitor of Greylock. Um, so he, he helped me with the business side and actually started the company together with me in, in Hamburg, in Germany. Okay. So then we both left, um, both left Zing and um, started that company together
2: with your team lead from exactly that, from that company exactly okay exactly and, and, um, and what were the first steps you took to start this company do you went out and raise money
1: um we thought about raising money um, and um, we were unsure if we should do it or not in the beginning um, until we were approached by we were in the beginning we were like in Germany it's not that easy to set up a company. You have to go to a notary, pay that notary a lot of money, um, have to do all kinds of paperwork, and it's all very regulated, and um, you spend a lot of time actually setting up your company. Um, it takes a lot of time actually to get a bank account for your company, yeah. um, which is something I learned over here is much easier. So we were still in like the steps of setting up the company. I think we got a first customer, even, um, that was paying us to host a Greylock for a few hundred dollars a, a month or something. Um, and um, during that time, and I still don't really know how that happened, a German investor that is mostly government funded actually reached out to me and wrote me, hey, I heard about Greylock. That all looks really interesting. It looks like you started a company. Are you interested in venture capital? And um, with the back then, I didn't really know what that is. Or I knew what it is, but I didn't know how it works, right? And um so yeah, we met that we met that person, and um, that person actually ended up one of our first investors, and um, mm. one uh, a wonderful investor. Great, great to have uh, that company on board with us. And um, they, um, yeah, they, they, we saw what I understand now, which is the moment you have one investor on board, it's much easier to get others on board too. So we mm. we then basically switched over from getting the company established to raising money. So we, we kind of stumbled into, uh, into that process and we actually ended up with um, four venture capital investors um, funding their company at the end of 2013, probably a year after we established the company legally. Um, we, uh, we got venture funding. In. Yeah, All in Germany. It was all a German
0: company, all German, right. um, actually all of them German investors too. Did you yeah. find that it was taking a lot of time out of working on the actual product, though? Did you Was that frustrating at all, or did you think that that was the most important thing to be doing at that time?
1: Um, I think we all agreed it was the most important time to do. Um, it was also forcing us to do some exercises, um, like get a proper business plan in place, get um, a lot of proper paperwork in place, um, build a real strategy, figure out who we want to hire, because this is stuff that venture capital is going to accelerate, that we would have probably... I don't know what would have happened if we didn't take on that that
2: venture capital. And it was just two of you up until when you raised that money. Yes, pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. Um, we then had. Um,
1: we uh, then, yeah. just real quick. Sorry. I
2: mean, it's uh, it's it's you know, a lot. this question comes up a lot mm-hmm. in Houston. Mm-hmm. How do I raise money? Where do mm-hmm. I, where do I raise money from? And. Um, you, your first investor actually came to you. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you didn't seek that person out. They, no. came, they came to you. And, and they I, came to you because you had built it and you had tons of traction.
1: Yes. Um, I still, we try to figure out how that all came together. We, we both, like that investor and I, and everyone involved can't really figure out how that actually came together. But I remember taking that phone call and trying to have a conversation that I back then didn't really understand what I was doing, but it seems like I was convincing enough
2: to get into like r- a real conversation with that fund. Tell us about team building. Mm-hmm. So you, you, ra- you how much money did you guys raise?
1: Um, we raised about 1 million euros in the seed round. That okay. was the first round. So that's, I think back then it was 1.3
2: million dollars or something. Right. Yeah. So you raised a good bit of money. Yeah. And, uh, and then the next thing you did was, uh, you know... Set your sights on building a team. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So tell us, tell us how that, how that, how did you build the team? Um, we
1: had the huge, huge, huge benefit of again being an open source product um, that we had a community already of people who were working on it, who were working with me on it um, before, and I knew great engineers in town that I was working with in teams before. So we basically just hired our complete open source community. Of the core contributors really, who are still working with us today. Is that right? Yeah. So I was I was on a call, I think, with them this morning. That's the people that I was working on with on Greylog in 2010. And when they were doing it in their free time or at the companies they were working at. We of course hired them first thing. Um, something to be careful about there is, and I think that's what happened to some open source projects, is if you hire your complete community, your community is gone. Uh, so you also have to be careful with how fast you hire your community because suddenly it's just a company that also happens to have an open source project mm-hmm. and the whole community works for that company. Um, but back then, because Greylock is is not the typical web development open source project where everybody can quickly go in, change a little bit of code and make a meaningful change, Greylock is pretty complicated. Just the nature of what it's doing is something that you have to get your head around, that you have to learn how it's working internally. It's high performance processing of messages throwing through a core um, where all kinds of optimizations are in. And it's 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 nothing where you just stop by and make a small change. So our community wasn't that huge of core contributors. That was people who invested time in learning how this stuff works. But yeah, so we hired a combination of our community and people we knew out of town and um, had a Pretty complete engineering team within, I would say, half a year,
2: roughly. So, so your product brought you your your first investor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it uh, you know it it garnered customers automatically mm-hmm. by way of just open source distribution, and it also filled your sales your hiring pipeline. Uh, and yeah. you built a team of how many people? Um, we over built over six months. Uh,
1: seven in total. Yeah. Seven in total, of which five. Four were coming. Three were coming out of the community, um, and we had more in the pipeline that we hired later.
2: Yeah. How do people make money with open source software? Mm-hmm. You just got finished telling us that it's completely free. Mm-hmm. So, how do you how do you make money as a business? Right.
1: That's um, the that's the flip side of all the benefits of open source. Of course, is figuring out how you make money off that and how you pay your developers and your people working on that. Right. Is um, the, the classic way, I think, right now is support and services. That means that you're, you're selling software contracts, you're selling hourly-based consulting to companies that are using your product simply to get them run more stable, to give them an insurance that if something goes wrong, they have a phone number to call or to help them with setup, with upgrades, stuff like that. Um, that is something you can do. Um, the, the, the I think the first suggested way, of because open source software is 35, 40 years old now? That's not a new concept. That has been done forever. Um, the first recommended way of monetizing open source software was actually printing handbooks and selling that. Basically printing out the documentation, bring it in the good book format, and send it out in mail uh-huh. to people and sell that. And this is the way you monetize your open source project. That was, of course, before before internet, where you just no one prints out anything anymore, right? Uh, you just get the documentation with it always, and you don't have to pay for it. Um, That is So support and services is, is I think, the most common way to do it right now. There is a trend um, that is called open core. That means that your core functionality of the product is open source, but stuff on top of it um, is being sold. That means that you have special functionality that, for example, a big company would need if they run your open source software. Then they should pay some money for it, which is... For example, if you have to be compliant to anything, then there might be an audit log module that is being sold, and then that company would buy that, maybe together with support and services.
2: But that's not something you guys are doing. You're focused on service and support.
1: We focus on services and support, but we just started selling, actually, commercial modules on top of Greylog. So we just started doing that with the 2.0 release. Um, And that, exactly what I just mentioned, is how we plan to do it. It's stuff on top of Greylog that helps a bigger company um, be successful with Greylog. and and we say that you the APIs that our commercial functionality is built on top of are still open. So that if you want to build the stuff yourself, you can still do that. They are documented and open. But if you want to get something that is supported by us, that's guaranteed to be working and ready right now, then you can also just buy it. And larger corporations tend to do that because they. I mean, why why would they? train developers and spend money and time of developers on extending your software when that is available already at a reasonable price. So that's what we just started doing together with the supported services.
2: So, Lennart, this was all in Hamburg, and uh, we're here having this conversation in Houston. And so at some point you moved to Houston. Uh, what's up with that?
1: <laughs> so we decided to uh, to move the company to Houston, and of course that meant that I would be moving with the company to Houston. So um, why I'd, though? Why, why did you guys move to Houston? So we moved the company to Houston simply because, well, we moved it to the U.S. first of all. Simply because mm-hmm. our biggest market is here, our possible partners are here. Um, we're just must, much closer to the people that we need to work with and that we want to that we want to work with, and. Um, we moved to Houston simply because two of our investors were based in Houston. So our friends at Mercury Fund, uh, who led our Series A round, are based in Houston. And also one of our seed investors is also based in Houston. So because we're don't, we we're not hiring engineering talent for now in, uh, in the U.S., we had no reason to go to Silicon Valley, for example. And we said we're going to go to Houston where we can hire great talent for everything that we need, um, but just don't pay the crazy prices that we will pay over in um, over in Silicon Valley. I mean, I'm, I'm renting a complete house now in Houston for the same price of... It has a huge garden, and I'm
2: paying the same price that I'm paying for my small apartment in Hamburg. So the cost of living is just so much lower in Houston. Right. So what are the business culture differences between mm-hmm. Germany and the U.S.? You've, you've been here now for how long? Uh, in, in- for, I've spent a lot of time here last year already.
1: I'm here for, I would say, for a year or something in total now. And um, the... The the business differences are really not that big between Germany and the U.S. Um, It's just two very rich, very developed countries that have a very similar um, uh, business culture, I think. There are some things that you have to get used to. It's um, how fast you hire people, and also if someone decides to leave the company, how fast these people leave the company. Because in Germany, you usually have, you stay for at least three months, um, and you can't leave the company without working for three more months, and the company also can't fire you without uh, keeping you for three more months. So um, it's it's there are some things that are just unusual that you have to get used to. Um,
2: they're just a little different, but I was the, the the general culture I would say isn't very different. Really. Yeah, some some of that varies in the United States from mm-hmm. state to state as well. Okay, I mean, right. I mean, Texas is is a um, what uh, at will state for okay. for in terms of. Employment, yeah. Yeah, in terms of employment. So, do um, so you like Houston? I love Houston. Um, I had to get used to it. I always like to tell the
1: story of my when I flew to Houston the first time was actually the first time I flew to the U.S. That was in 2014, and I've never been to the U.S. before. I actually never left the European Union before I flew to the U.S. that day, huh. and um, I had to get my passport to fly over there because in the European Union you just you don't even need an ID. You just get out of the plane like you get out of a train. Um, and you're just, wow, now you're in France, now you're in Italy, now you're in Spain. So I had to get a passport uh, and apply for one uh, a few days before I flew to the US. And uh, I had a connection flight to Amsterdam, and um, that was delayed, so I asked the flight attendant if I would make my flight to the US. And he looked at his list of delayed flights that he got in the meantime and looked at me and said, yeah, you'll be fine, yeah, you'll be fine. And the guy sitting next to me said, looked at him, looked at me again, looked at him again and said, Yeah, he'll be fine, except he's going to Houston <laughs> So that was that was on the way to Houston. Uh that was really my first um that was before I, I uh I flew to the U.S. the first time. So, I had to get used to it. Houston doesn't have the best image, I would say, in the U.S. Is that and right? Huh. I think when I meet people... In Germany, you mean, or in, or in, or in Europe? In Germany, because it's Texas, I think. Okay. Uh, Texas is a little special. Like, Bavaria is seen a little special, I would say. What, what, moment, did, you,
0: what did you expect coming in?
1: I really didn't expect anything, because I knew that Germans have a very stereotypical view on americans so i was like i'm just going to see it i'm I'm here for five days what can possibly go wrong right Right. so i just flew over um the first thing you see is the huge billboards on the way from the airport you're like wow maybe that's not actually stereotypical it is just like that (laughs) (laughs) but then the moment you spend a little more time here you just the people are nice the food is great um that's really the, the two things that i need to feel Great in another place. that's um, yeah, great people. I love Houston.
2: I noticed. Uh, I noticed on Facebook the other day that you you take public transport now to uh, <laughs> to your office. I do, which is like totally not a Houston thing. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> that's true.
1: That's because I'm lucky. We're living uh, very close to the uh, uh, to the light rail to the Red Line here in Houston. So I just walk to the next crossing at the next block, basically get into a train, and then get out in Midtown and just walk to our office from there. So I'm just lucky enough to be able to take the public transportation. We had an office location somewhere else before, and I just couldn't. I always yeah. wanted to. Um, I enjoy the morning, um, just read something, maybe start with your emails, get into office with a clear head. And I have a 10-minute walk from the train station with a Starbucks in the middle. And um, that's wow. something when you're coming from Europe where you take public transportation anywhere and you can actually walk, um, in, in uh, yeah in cities where you can walk that's probably the biggest difference, and uh, also I think one of the biggest parts where Houston has to improve simply because I tried to walk um, once and I'll never do it again because I almost got hit like three times <laughs> in a 10 minute period sure. so it, it just is not a good idea I think that's a yeah
2: yeah I, j- I joke with people that uh, that you only walk in Houston if you want to get hit by a car yeah right? exactly so, but, but I, I I wish Houston was more of a walking city yep. and, and in my own you know, places, I try to walk as much as possible. Yep. So I, I live in West U and I walk to the Rice Village at least two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, and where I am, Sawyer in Washington, our office, Catalina Coffee is a short walk away. I mean, you know, and even if it's hot, like I don't mind sweating Exactly. I mean right. we
1: were office neighbors before, right? At our yeah, old office. Yeah. So I know the walk to Catalina coffee and then Buffalo Bayou Park is beautiful. Amazing, right? That's it's amazing, amazing over there. Yep. You can you can walk there. So I I got my daily walking in there for like thirty minutes by just walking around the park. Okay, so favorite restaurants?
2: Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I realized that we need to like make that a fixture in all of our interviews. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely, it's Houston, after all. Yeah, <laughs> you have
0: to talk about food at some point. <laughs>
2: um, my favorite restaurants are
1: probably Beavers, is great. We've been there together, yeah. Um, that was a walking distance from the old office. They're closed on Mondays. very important. I stood at closed doors a lot. Um, <laughs> Beavers is great, that's close to Washington Avenue. Um, I love b b Butchers, also close, directly on Washington Avenue, actually. Um, Torchy's Tacos, of course. Um, I'm a big fan of soul food, which is, probably goes back to the did you gain weight? Well, I mean, <laughs> like, spending time in Houston. Um, that's great places. I mean, I'm a big fan of fusion food. Um, so there is, what's it called? It's a Korean-American fusion food um, close to the medical center. Um I forgot the name. That's
2: a great place. Um, steakhouses. I, I always tell people with fusion food that the risk is that they're when they fuse together A and B that it's neither good A nor good B. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you how do you how do you spend your time personally at the at the company you now? You were the you were the original engineer on mm-hmm. the on the product, and uh, do you are you still doing engineering or um, your, your title is CEO? Mm-hmm. So what is, what is your, you know, what's your responsibility now uh, with this team? I
1: was, so I was still working on the actual of core when I started the company, um, especially in the first days. Both Kai and I, our first engineer who started the company, like who joined us on the first day, basically. Um, we were both just working full time on grain on the code, because it was just us. and We had so many things to do. Um, I then gradually stopped. To like more and more uh, stop working on the Greylock core actually, simply because my days are now so hard to plan that I cannot be part of any roadmap development of or the development of Greylock that's part of any roadmap because suddenly something comes up and then I won't be delivered to um, to uh, uh, or I won't be able to deliver the code within the time frame. Then I keep everybody like I'm just gonna block processes. So we we all decided that that I'm not working on the Greylock core anymore. Um, I love coding, though, and um, it's almost like recreational work on code from time to time. So sometimes I would change something on the website of graylock.org or work on the payment system of graylock.org, or something that's not necessarily part of the actual product. Um, sure. So that's the engineering I'm doing. And then besides that, I just talk a lot to customers. Um, I'm, of course, involved with, the, with our investors a lot. Um, it's, yeah, it's really coordination of everyone. I think it's a classic stuff that a CEO and
2: founder of a young company um, it's doing yeah so what's next where what where, where is uh what's what do you uh, see ahead for Greylog in the next 12 months mm-hmm. um point so 2.0 just came out sorry you were you yeah. were saying but you know 2.0 just came out you have this uh what did you call it open core exactly right? it's open core um, right, so then, you have something you're selling now so if you have some new revenue streams perhaps exactly. besides support
1: yeah we have we have sales that are going really well and I'm looking forward to Keep that keep that going and see that um see that increasing like it did uh during this year already. And um we're working on features, we're working on we have some shortcomings in the product um that we're very, very clear about that we are we have a roadmap for how to fix them. So a very clear engineering roadmap for the rest of the year. We start working on our 3.0 series basically already. Um that's gonna be something I can't really tell yet what's gonna be in there, but it's gonna be something I think very exciting from an engineering perspective with this actual really good engineering going on right now in Germany I'm always excited when I go over there and see the results of what the team over there did um, and um, yeah we're, we keep on developing the product and we we are also in the process right now of signing up some very
2: interesting partners and customers um, so I'm looking forward to maybe some press releases coming out in the summer about that oh cool. yeah and, and fundraising, what are your future fundraising plans?
1: Um, we will be probably not fundraising this year anymore. Um, but one thing I learned is that you're basically always fundraising. Um, so mm-hmm. while we're always fundraising, I think that the next actual fundraising we're looking into probably next year. That's at least, if you look at the cash on the account, then there's not like the, the next fundraising is probably
2: planned for next year. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Us. All right. Well, uh, hey Leonard, thanks a lot for joining us. This is uh, this has been really informative. You've, you've accomplished a lot in uh, in a short amount of time, and I think it's really awesome how uh, how you've you've uh, you've learned what you've needed to know along the way, whether it's programming skills or uh, raising money or uh, or navigating, you know, building a customer base. Yep, yeah, it's pretty awesome.
0: So no, it's awesome. Thank you.